Welcome, uh, Reverend Charlie Garrett. Up, uh, it's my privilege just to introduce him. About two and a half years ago, Charlie um, came to Grace and wanted to be ordained, and so he attended for about a year and uh, was very active during this time. He teaches a Sunday school class, and uh, it's just been a vital, vital part of the ministry. And um, uh, about a year later, uh, we, as a church, ordained him, recognized God's calling on his life. And Charlie's just had a really amazing ministry. You may know him from some of his ministries. He has a ministry out at the beach on Sunday nights where they uh, meet together and worship God. Uh, he also has a very active Facebook ministry, too, and uh, uh, ministers and touches a lot of people through that. And uh, last year, he traveled across the whole country, going to every capital in the U.S., learning about uh, the Christian heritage of this country and, uh, and doing a lot of street evangelism preaching. And so would you just uh, join me in welcoming uh, Reverend Charlie Garrett? I don't know if you can hear me. We have to do a test. Unfortunately, with the beard, the microphone has to be lower than normal. Can you all hear me? Okay. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I was asked by Seth to preach here. And as he said, I have something that I do on Sunday afternoons, and it takes a lot of effort during the week, especially mental effort. And if you know the size of my brain, there's not a lot of spare room. So I actually thought, I don't know if I can do this or not. And the first thing that popped into my head was Linda Dwyer's angry red face. And the reason why I say that is because she has missed all of my sermons, and she's always reminding me about that. She's saying, oh, I'm getting to see your sermon. Well, you know, if her husband would stay out of the hospital or she'd stop traveling to Zaire or wherever, we wouldn't have this problem. But anyway, you can either thank or blame Linda for this today. And then something else happened. Seth, when he emailed me, he was talking about two separate things. And as I was reading, I read them as one thing. And so I thought that he wanted me to preach on 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today, and I prepared for that, and I prepared for that, and on Tuesday I posted it on Facebook, this is what I'm going to be talking about, and I get an email from somebody in Texas, Will Groban, who attends here sometimes, and uh, he said, Charlie, that series isn't until August, and I went back and I read the email again, and I called Seth, and I said, what do I, you know, which is it? He said, no, you misunderstood me, and uh, you can speak on anything within reason. That's what his email said. And so today, we are going to speak on why Christian men should wear beards. Actually, I emailed my daughter about that. I had started typing that. And I said, what do you think? Is that within reason in Tangerine over at Anna's? She said, no, 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 don't do that. So today, we're going to speak on Christology, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I suppose that that qualifies with, within reason. So, Jesus had a beard, though, didn't he? Just saying. Before I get into Christology, though, I want you to think on, and some of my people in uh, my Sunday school class know who he is, but who is the shortest person in the Bible? And you know the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man that climbed up in the sycamore fig tree? and he uh, wanted to see Jesus. But he certainly isn't the shortest person in the Bible because shorter than him was Lo Am I from the book of Hosea. But even shorter than him is a man named Nehemiah by the book by his name. But even shorter than him is a man named Bildad the Shuhite. And that's a very small person. 
But believe it or not, there's somebody that's not even as tall as Bildad. Actually, there's two people. Their names are Peter and James. Because while Jesus slept, I'm sorry, while Jesus prayed in the garden, they slept on their watch. So they're very small people. Anyway, it's a cute joke, but the fact is that they slept while Jesus agonized over the trial to come. So of all the doctrines in the Bible, the one about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our Lord, known as Christology, is the one that I cherish the most. I love the doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of God, and thinking about that, I'd love to grapple with the doctrine of sin, which is the doctrine of hamartiology. And then my class, I think, prefers the doctrine of eschatology, or the study of last things. We've been doing that for, it seems like, three years now. And I avoid the doctrine of ecclesiology, like the plague, which is the study of the church. That is not my thing. But I simply cannot get enough of Jesus Christ. Florence Nightingale said, people talk about imitating Christ and imitate him in the trifling little things, the formal things, such as washing their feet, saying his prayer, and so on. But if anyone attempts the real imitation of him, there are no bounds to the outcry with which the presumption of that person is condemned. Jesus is the standard of our faith. He is the one to model. He is the one who reveals the very heart of God to us. And as Miss Nightingale noticed, when we try to put him in the proper position in our lives, people just can't handle it. Jesus is just okay when we use him as a doorstop, but when we put him as the capstone of our life at the top of the doorway, people cringe. And if you want proof of that, all you need to do is hop into my Jesus truck with me someday and drive down the road and see the hand gestures and the angry faces as people pass by. But you'll also see the people that give you the thumbs up and they beep and they make a big deal of it. So it kind of balances each other out. But people do not like Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus. They hate him, in fact. Were we to speak fully on the doctrine of Christ today, Christology, the sermon would never end. And in fact, with the little bit that I know about Jesus, we could talk till Wednesday without taking a break. And if we add in the quotes about him from people of ages past, we'd be old and gray and we would just be getting started. So my pitiful attempt today at explaining Christology to you needs by necessity to be cut short so that we can all go home and take a nap. But he is there, even at that time, mediating for us between us and his Father. Because even in our sinful dreams, we reveal who we really are. And we need a mediator even then. So here's our text verse for today. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Who is the Christ? And what is the significance of being Christ? And what does that really mean to the people of the world? May God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Point number one today is the promised one. A man named Anthony Coniara said, It is as if God, the Father, is saying to us, Since I have told you everything in my word, Who is my son? 
I have no other words that can at present say anything or reveal anything to you beyond this. Fix your eyes on him alone, a reference to Hebrews 12 too. For in him I have told you all, revealed all, and in him you will find more than you desire or ask. If you fix your eyes on him, you will find everything, for he is my whole word and my reply. He is my whole vision and my revelation. In Genesis, third chapter in the 15th verse, we read these words, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is known as the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel because it's the first specific mention of one who would come to undo what we had so catastrophically fouled up when we believed the lies of the devil. However, I assure you that this is not, although it's the first specific mention of Christ, it is not the first hint of Christ in the Bible. There are subtle hints of him that go right back to Genesis 1.1. If you look closely enough, you will find Jesus Christ in every word of the Bible. He's revealed there somehow because God is telling us of one who was and one who is and one who is to come. When I was just coming to know the Lord about 10 years ago, a pastor said something to me that I've always remembered. When you read the Bible, ask yourself, how does this point to Jesus? Now, I don't know if that was his thoughts or not. I have no idea. But it opened up the Bible in a way to me that is simply astonishing. And I would hope that you would follow that advice as you go throughout your Bible reading. You see, it is all about him in the end. We just need to determine how this is so. Here are a couple tidbits I want to give you from an account in Genesis. Now, if you've read the account of Genesis, which I hope you have, then you've read the account of Jacob, who is Israel, and the account of how Jacob married a girl named Rachel. Rachel had a couple of children, and when she had her second child, he died, or she died as she was giving birth to him. Well, let's read the account together, and then we'll talk about it. Then they journeyed from Bethel, And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Now this one paragraph gives you a lot more information about Christ than you may imagine. You say, why is this in here? Is it just so that we feel bad about a guy losing his wife, a child born without a mother, or is there something more? We'll start out with what the meaning of Bethel is. Now, you see this chart behind you. It's a little jumbled. I'm not good at PowerPoints, but I've tried to give you some of the information I'm going to talk about here. Bethel, Bethel, means house of God, and that's a picture of heaven. And as Jesus said, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And they were on their way from Bethel down to Bethlehem. Well, we all know that's where Jesus was born. Bethlehem is known as Bethlehem, the house of bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So this is a picture of the Redeemer coming down from heaven and going to Bethlehem and being fulfilling the bread of life, which is the name of that. But as well, it says that it's named Ephrath. And you think, well, why is it in there? We know it's Bethlehem. But Ephrath means fruit or fruitful. 
And it's another picture of the Christ, which says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And then we have the name of the mother who died, Rachel, or Rachel, which is a ewe lamb. What is the child of a lamb? It's a male lamb. It says here in the uh, book of John, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then it says in the book of Isaiah, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And in the Greek translation of this passage from Isaiah, the word amnos is used, which is a sacrificial lamb. It's not just any lamb. It's a lamb that was taken to the temple, and it was sacrificed there for the sins of the people. And John, when he quoted that in the New Testament, he says, Behold, the amnos of God the sacrificial lamb. So even there, they're parallel in this one paragraph, speaking of them. And then it says here, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. And that's a picture of us in our own lives before we come to Christ and the whole creation itself laboring, as it says in the book of Romans, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. And then the maidservant said to Rachel, do not fear. And in the same way, the Lord's angel said to the Lord's maidservant Mary, do not be afraid, do not fear Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and she'll call his name Jesus. And as she was dying, she said, he is Benoni, which means the son of my suffering. And we read in the New Testament Testament about Jesus' suffering when he said, though he was a son, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And we read about the suffering on and on as he fulfilled this picture of this one paragraph. And then it says, so Rachel died. And it says in the book of Romans again, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And she's dying and away the body of flesh, waiting for her coming redeemer, who her son pictured. And then what happened? The father says, it's not Benoni. Benjamin, Benjamin, the son of my right hand. And as we read in the book of Mark, it says, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And throughout the New Testament, we see the son of the right hand mentioned again and again. And finally, we come to where they are. They're leaving Bethlehem. They're going, I'm sorry, Bethel, and they're going down to Bethlehem. And on the way down there, 20 years earlier, Jacob had gone up to Padamaran to find a wife. And when he stopped in Bethel, he was tired and he took a rock and he slept on the rock and he had visions of God, a ladder reaching up to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. And this was fulfilled in the Christ himself when he said, and he said to him, speaking to Nathanael in the first chapter of John, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the sun man, all in one paragraph, an obscure birth of a boy and a death of a mother, all of that is revealed and more than I could do, that I could tell you about today. And this is what we do, just so you know, if anybody is looking for something to do on Monday morning, we have a Bible study right over here, and we talk about these things, we search the scriptures together to find these things, and we do the same thing on Saturday afternoon at 4.30. 
4.30, we meet together. So if anybody's interested in finding things like this in the Bible, they're there. There's thousands of them. God revealing to us his son, Jesus Christ, in the pages of the Bible. And instead, we play Farmville on Facebook. Here are a couple more accounts in the Old Testament which are much less veiled concerning the coming Christ. And yet there is veiled information in them. These are prophecies telling us specifically about the things of Jesus, his birth and his ministry. From the book of Micah, we read the very spot where the Lord would be born. This prophecy was so specific in what it was saying to King Herod when he went to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, where is this child going to be born? And they went right to this passage. Out of the thousands and thousands of verses in the scriptures, he said, this is where it's going to be. It's going to be in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are old from everlasting. Now this prophecy was about the Lord Jesus and where he would be born, where he was ushered into the world in which he created. And then another very specific prophecy comes only days before we usher him out of the world, the very beings that he created, shouted for joy as he rode into Jerusalem, and five days later, they nailed him to a tree. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. The word there, having salvation, is the word yesha. It's the root of the word Yeshua. So here's Jesus having salvation, riding on a donkey. There's the explicit, and then hidden in the explicit are wondrous mysteries, just waiting for you to discover. The probability that Jesus could have filled, fulfilled eight of such prophecies would be one in ten to the 17th power. In his book, Science Speaks, Peter Stoner says, if you had that many silver dollars, one in the 17th power, it would be enough to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. One to the 17th power. 270,000 square miles of land covered two feet deep in silver dollars, and you'd have to walk over, put your hand in without looking, and pull out the correct one. That's if eight were fulfilled. Liberal scholars that deny the greatness of Jesus Christ have to admit 60. Alfred Adersheim, the 19th century theologian, has a list of 456. The silver dollars at that power of magnitude would fill the entire universe, and there'd be change left over for Slurpees for eternity. I'm not kidding. That is the greatness of our God. And Alfred Adersheim's 456, I tell you, we found how many in one paragraph of the Old Testament. There are thousands of them thousands. The magnitude would go on, and it does go on forever, the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, we have to stop here with types and pictures, because there are so many we would never get to point to. But what I would like you to remember is that when you read the Bible, you ask yourself, how does this point to Jesus? Point number two today is the hypostatic union, the God-man. The term hypostatic union goes all the way back to a guy named Apollinarius of Laodicea in AD 390. It's been worked on, it's been amended, it's been debated over that time. But since then, it is a way of describing the union of man with God in the person of Jesus Christ. 
two hyposes, or two states in the person, the hypostatic union. Concerning the basis for Jesus' deity, you cannot deny the virgin birth and come up with that. In fact, the two are absolutely inseparable. Larry King questioned one time. He said, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born, because the answer to that question would define history. Well, I'm sorry for Larry, but we're not going to get a chance to answer that question. He is in heaven, and we are on earth, and God has given us his word, and we stand or we fall by what his word states. This is what God expects, not just some arrogant demand, but the humility of accepting his word at face value about the person and work of Jesus Christ. God looks for faithfulness in his faithless creatures. So I want you to know that a little bit will do. Peter Larson showed faith. He said, despite our efforts to keep him out, God intrudes. The life of Jesus is bracketed by two impossibilities, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. Jesus entered our world through a door marked no entrance, and he left our world through a door marked no exit. So let's talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. What is it about this particular subject that makes, and I mean this, it makes my head hurt. Of all the thinking I do on the person of Jesus Christ, this is the one area that I cannot get my mind around. God uniting with human flesh, it takes me to the point of mental exhaustion. And so, this is the truth, when I can't sleep, I think about it, and it puts me to sleep. It never fails to do so. Not because of boredom, but because it simply pushes everything else out and it just puts me to sleep. Peaceful sleep from a wonderful Savior. The virgin birth means that Jesus was born into humanity through Mary, but he re retained his deity from the Father, the God-man. So when we ponder questions about Jesus, one question must, in almost every circumstance, give two answers. Could Jesus weep as God? No. As man, yes. Could Jesus learn? As God, no. As man, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. Could Jesus suffer? As God, no. As man, yes. Could Jesus die? As God, no. As man, he did. Could Jesus sin? As God, no. As man, people debate that one. Some say yes, some say no. The, the debate is there, and hotheads love to debate over it. But regardless of the truth of that question, in the end, he didn't. We serve a perfect Savior. And the term incarnation, which is the basis for the hypostatic union, comes from the words in and carn, meaning flesh, carnal. God united with humanity and walked among us, and yet Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is the divine logos the word of God who took upon these robes of flesh, being born of a virgin. He did not possess humanity before the conception. And yet, there are mysteries about his appearances in the Old Testament. No matter his state since then, since his conception, he is clothed with humanity forever in this hypostatic union. He's not bound by the human nature, he remains fully God, and yet his nature, his God and his humanity, in no way intermingle, and yet they're in no way separate. 
He has all the attributes of man, a human genealogy. He aged and increased in knowledge. He prayed, he got hungry, he got tired, he felt compassion, he wept, he was thirsty. Many times, more than a hundred in fact, he is called the son of man or the son of David, indicating his human nature, and so on. And yet he has all the attributes of God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He has eternality. He has omnipresence, as he indicated at his ascension. He has omniscience, as he recorded in the book of John. He has omnipotence, as he stated himself at the Great Commission. He is immutable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He performs the work of God, such as raising the dead. Over 40 times he is called the Son of God, indicating his divine nature, and so on. So let's define the hypostatic union, and then we'll move on. Jesus Christ is fully God, deity, uniting with full humanity, without intermingling or separation in these qualities. In him there is no change or division of any kind, completely and forever. He is the finite, united with the infinite, the point where God fellowships with man. Yes, he is full deity. And yes, he is full humanity. As I said, when we ask a question about Jesus Christ, we need to give two answers. Could Jesus suffer? As a man, he did suffer. And that brings me to point number three, the servant who suffered. Howard Hendricks said of Jesus, there was no identity crisis in the life of Jesus Christ. He knew who he was, he knew where he had come from, and why he was here. And he knew where he was going. And when you were that liberated, you can serve. And again, Clement of Alexandria said, the Lord ate from a common bowl and asked his disciples to sit on the grass. He washed their feet with a towel wrapped around his waist. He who is the Lord of the whole universe. In Matthew 20, we read these words, and whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did come to serve. Mark's gospel in particular is a gospel of his servanthood. But along with his serving came suffering. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Now suffering is one of those things that we, that we human beings simply have to put up with. We suffer through boring sermons. We suffer when we stub our toe. We suffer at the loss of family or friends or even a treasured family pet. We are tied into this physical world, and we have no choice in that. That restraint brings on suffering. And whether we like it or not, we are here and we do suffer. We have no choice in the matter. And so I'd ask, how many of you personally had to make unpleasant choices? I can either do this or I can do that. Maybe it involves something really, really unpleasant, like voting for McCain or voting for Obama but you knew you had to make the right choice, and so you voted for either him or you voted for him. Either way, you knew you had to do the right thing. Maybe it's something even more difficult, like being able to afford a present for your child or paying your electricity bill. I, I don't know. We have choices to make, but these choices aren't really suffering. In fact, we might have to face choices about suffering at some point. Do I accept chemotherapy or do I take my chances? One way or another, we are going to suffer, either from the medicine or we're going to suffer from not knowing when we're going to die and the pain that comes along with that accepting the medicine. We have
have a choice about the suffering, but we have no choice in the suffering. But Jesus, Jesus did have a choice. Not only did he come to serve as our Gospels record, but he came to suffer as well. The Creator had a choice, but to demonstrate his greatness and his love, he did something so extraordinary, something so immense that it's just absolutely beyond comprehension. We talk about Jesus' life, and we talk about Jesus' death, and we sing about the wondrous cross. But we don't really consider that it was voluntary. And not only was this voluntary, but he did it for us. Would you go through what Jesus Christ went through for a spider? And I'm absolutely serious about that, would you? A spider is far, far closer to us than we are to God. Would you suffer or allow your child to suffer for a maggot? Be about the 22nd prophecy about the cross in the 22nd Psalm. Jesus equates himself with a worm, rather a grub. It says, Behold, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. This passage was repeated in the Gospels as people mocked Jesus on the cross, and he took it voluntarily. About this particular worm that we're mentioning, it's the word tola in Hebrew. Henry Morris writes this, When the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. Sounds like the cross to me. The eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood. From the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. What a picture this gives us of Christ dying on the tree, shedding his precious blood that he might bring many sons unto glory. He died for us that we might live through him. In one way or another, everything pictures him in the Bible, even a worm. It's all about him. Everything points to the majesty of a bruised and crushed Savior, a glorious servant. Now, rather than trying to expand any further on what God has given us concerning his suffering servanthood, allow me the honor, please, of simply reading to you the prophesied role of this suffering servant from the book of Isaiah. It's a little bit long. Close your eyes and think about what Christ Jesus did for you as he went through his life and his crucifixion. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was, appearance was so disfigured that beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet he was considered stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb. Once again, the word amnas, the sacrificial lamb, a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering and a sham, going back again to the sacrifices of the Old Testament, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so Jesus suffered and he died, just as Isaiah prophesied, in every detail. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Have you seen the passion of the Christ? If you think that was overkill, it wasn't. It very well may not have told the extent of Jesus Christ's suffering. So I ask you again, would you do this for a cockroach? Before you answer, let me add in that a cockroach does not curse his creator. Jesus Christ confirmed his role as the one to suffer as he walked along the road to Emmaus with two people that didn't recognize him. He said, then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the things in the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Everything's about Jesus. But in contrast, Peter spoke of the reason for Christ's suffering. It was all for us. For Christ suffered once for the sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. For me, a cockroach is closer to me than I am to God. And for me, he did this. And Jesus didn't just suffer physically. He also suffered in agony as he waited his cross. He suffered and mourned with those who mourned, and he suffered temptation, just as we did. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for that in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. 
unbelievable. I can't get over it. Ten years later, and for you, for each one of you, he did this. But suffering is not the end of the story. There is something more amazing ahead, and that brings me to point number four, the resurrection of Christ. Henry Morris said, and please listen carefully as I read this quote, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. Now, I want you to know before I talk about this that the resurrection is the most documented occurrence in ancient history. It is absolutely sure. There is nothing more sure in all of the texts of the world than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from that time period. Now, after including this quote in this sermon, I thought about it, and I thought about it a lot. I had all the information to agree with the conclusions about it, and I've taught on every precept as to why this conclusion must be true. But I still never really mentally aligned it up until a couple weeks ago. Early in the morning, I was out cleaning the parking lot at Davidson's Drugs with my leaf blower, and I was coming around the back corner of Davidson's Drugs, and it all came into focus. Yes, I believe in the resurrection, but how does that prove that Jesus is God? How does it do it? That's what I was thinking as I was trying to determine in my mind before I went quoting something that I just couldn't logically agree with 100%. But I was blowing off a pile of sand and glass. Somebody took a bottle and they threw it up against the wall. It was full of beach sand. And I was blowing it off. And as the sand went away from the glass, my mind cleared up just like the glass did with the sand disappearing. The, re the resurrection is a result of a sinless life. We all know that. It's the only way it could have happened. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. That's recorded in Genesis, and then it's explicitly said in the book of Romans. We die because of sin. Jesus lived a sinless life. So what? This doesn't prove Jesus is God. What if somebody was born today, and he didn't sin in his whole life? Would this prove the, that he is God? No. Could he die and receive the resurrection? No, because babies die all the time and they've never committed a sin. And they're not God and they don't resurrect. So I'm thinking, what am I missing here? The very precepts that I've taught in the past, in classes and even here giving sermons, are what prove this precept. I just needed to line them up with this guy's quote. Not only did Jesus live a sinless life, but he was born sinless. He was born of Mary, of man. Those dead babies, they were born of Adam. They inherited man's sin. All right? Sin transfers through the man. This means that Jesus was born of God and Mary. So the resurrection is 100% conditional on the virgin birth. No virgin birth equals no resurrection. But the virgin birth does not guarantee the resurrection. Nor does living a sinless life, even if one is born not born of a virgin. Both the virgin birth and a sinless life are conditions for the resurrection. If Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then he would have inherited Adam's sin. But even if he was born of a virgin, he would still need to live perfectly, sinlessly throughout his life in order to receive the resurrection. So I wrote up two arguments so you can understand this. The resurrection is conditional upon a sinless life. A sinless life is conditional 
on the virgin birth. Therefore, the resurrection proves the virgin birth. And then the second argument, the resurrection proves the virgin birth. The virgin birth proves that Jesus was born of God and Mary. Therefore, Jesus is God's son, the God-man. I like to say, I've known that all along, but it's just nice to have that cleared up in my head before I go quoting something. But now that we have that out of the way, I want to give you one more thought on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here it comes. I copied it from Mark 16, verse 6. He is risen. But even that isn't the end of the story. There's still more before we finish. This is my fifth point. The king of glory. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Daniel Webster said this, If I might comprehend Jesus Christ, I could not believe on him. He would be no greater than myself. Such is my consciousness of sin and inability that I must have a superhuman savior. So after his resurrection, Jesus stayed with the apostle for 40 days. And imagine the things that they learned in those 40 days. They went from being complete novices about the things of God to the heralds of a new plan in God's redemptive order. If you've never taken the time to read the epistles, the epistles are the letters from Romans to Jude. It literally takes a couple of hours. But there is more information in those letters about the things of God than in every book ever published in human history in a few hours of reading. We have in those books the great unveiling of God's unimaginable plan for the people of the world right there at our fingertips. And instead, we play the week till all hours of the night. Make it a commitment to read those books because you can do it in less time than it takes you to brush your teeth over the period of a month, if you brush your teeth. Please brush your teeth. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Christ's ascension and in his present session, he dwells in the same physical body that he lived and died in. So the question is, where is he now? And the only reasonable explanation is that he has moved into some other dimension in this time-space world. He's hidden from our view, but he is there working out his many roles on our behalf for the church, the people that he loves. Wherever Enoch and Elijah are, wherever they went, that's my guess is where he is. And he really will return again into the stream of humanity at some point. That's recorded several times in the New Testament, in Corinthians and in Thessalonians, and especially in the book of Revelation. But until that time, he is actively interceding on our behalf between God the Father and us. He's fulfilling his role as our advocate and as our mediator. John calls him an advocate. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The very fact that John brings in the fact that we need an advocate proves that he knows that sin will come. No one needs an advocate unless they have been charged with an offense. In the book of Hebrews, though, he is called our mediator. 
So what's the difference? An advocate is a person who pleads for or on behalf of another. A mediator is a person who intervenes to bring about an agreement. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of his death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Jesus Christ is the one to fulfill both of these roles. He brought about the covenant in his own blood, redeeming us out of the power of sin and the law, and then he continually pleads before the Father for us when we violate the very law that he died to bring us out of. In addition to this, he is overseeing the church of which he is the head, as it says in the book of Revelation. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one, like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice was the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The lampstands that are mentioned there represent the ages of the church over which he is in complete control. There he is walking around the lampstands, walking around the churches, checking our hearts and minds and doctrine. And he's here with us right now in some sense. So, Charlie, are you sure about what you're preaching? Ray, are you right with your neighbor? Phil? Phil, do you need an advocate today? Jesus Christ fulfilled those roles for us. He is in complete control of all of these things. Now, I ask you, how busy are you? Do you feel like you have too many tasks to perform at any given time? Because if you think that you have a plateful, I have only touched on the duties that he is fulfilling for us right now. I mean, all hail Jesus' name. What a great and wonderful Savior we serve. And Christ Jesus really is coming again. Unlike Peter and James, who slept while Jesus prayed in sweat, bloodied by anguish, we need to be awake and attentive to the hour that's coming. The Bible says that his return for the church is going to be in the twinkling of an eye. Just so you know, you blink your eye 15,000 times in a single day, and the muscle that causes your eye to blink is the fastest muscle in the entire body. You can blink five times in a single second. One blink takes 150 milliseconds. And Paul used this term so that we know that the action will be over before we even realize that it's happened. And when that moment comes, when Christ makes his call for his people and we're off to meet him in the clouds, the door will be shut. Paul says in the book of Corinthians, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So I'm going to conclude my thoughts here today with a quote about Jesus Christ. But we could go on forever. Our creator has laid out a drama in which we are participants. The world is on a 7,000-year stage. Jesus Christ was promised at the beginning. He was continuously anticipated during the entire first act, which lasted until the year 4,000, and he arrived on time. His role was fulfilled in a presentation which was hard for us to follow, and yet which astounded us in its execution. When it appeared that the play was over and the cross had won, 
we realized that the second act had just begun. One more incredible than the panorama of time past. Like the first act, his, his stage is now one of anticipation. One in which we now dwell and participate in. But we're looking forward to his second entrance. Considering what he did at his first entrance, the second should be simply astonishing. What is your passion? What is your allegiance? And what is your hope? Where are your eyes directed? If you can't answer Jesus to these questions, you need to reevaluate yourself and redirect whatever is lacking so that Jesus, and only Jesus, is the answer to the question. Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf, he got it right. He says, I have one passion. It is he, only he. Without Christ, the New Testament wouldn't exist, and the Old Testament would remain unfulfilled, ending on a curse for all mankind. Jesus Christ is the central theme of the Bible, from the first line of Genesis to the very last line of Revelation. He is our hope, he is our redeemer, our sustainer, our joy, he is our peace, he is our all in all. He is our God. Now I'd like the musicians to go ahead and come up behind me and I want to speak to the people real quietly for a moment. I'd like to take just a second with all of you and enter the cross of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that there is none righteous. No, not one. It includes every person here. We are all unrighteous in and of ourselves. And the Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And God is glorious. He's amazingly glorious. And the Bible says that our sin, the wages of that sin, is death. We earned death by what we've done by what we inherited through Adam. But the gift of God, the Bible says, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Charlie Garrett, a sinning person, Christ died for me and for you. And God doesn't make it very hard. He says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if I don't know anybody in here what their state with Jesus Christ is. Only you do. But all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and he will forgive you. And he will grant you eternal life. Not because you deserve it, but because he loves you enough to step out of eternity and die on a cross. I wouldn't do that for a maggot. And I wouldn't send my son to the cross for a cock. Father, thank you so very much for allowing me to speak on the cross today and on the person and work of Jesus Christ. How glorious he is and how wonderful it is to be called a son of God through what he did and not because of anything I've ever done or ever will do. I love you, Lord, and I pray for any person here who has never made the commitment to Jesus Christ that they will simply stop playing around with you and stop trying to earn your favor and just simply call on Jesus as Lord. And it's in his beautiful, precious, and glorious name that I pray.